record on this computer. And I'm going to do this on, live on Facebook since you're not showing your faces. That's, um, let's just try this one more thing and then let's hopefully this will, this will work. Okay. So I hope I'll be, I hope I'll get through this in, in an hour. Uh, so let's go back to my share screen. Okay, so this was a, a very unique trip to Ukraine, and it was also a very uh, inspiring and a, a unforgettable trip, and very different to any other trip I've ever been on before, and I've been on many, many trips before. The, the reason why it was different, and I'm going to try to play some videos also if I get some time afterwards, is that this was a personal like um, uh, mission or pilgrimage by Rabbi Ephraim Tversky to go visit the grave sites of some of his own family members. And it was the first time he'd ever done that. And so... I've been davening at his shul for you know many years, but mostly over the last 18 months or so. And uh, this opportunity came up uh, a little over a month ago, and it was only three days. And uh, fortunately, someone, a very generous sponsor, sponsored the 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 ground cost. So all it cost was the air ticket, uh, and and you'll see as we go along that uh, uh, it wasn't a very uh, elaborate trip, but it did require a lot of planning. I don't know if any of you have been to Eastern Europe before. I've never been to Eastern Europe before. And uh, it was also, uh, for me personally, interesting because many of the students that I teach are from Ukraine either themselves or their parents. And, and so it gave me an insight into their lives and uh, also their parents' lives, which was very interesting. And then also it was, you know, a very significant, I've never been to the camps, for example, in, 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 uh, in Germany or in, in Poland. Uh, and, and yet Ukraine doesn't have concentration camps but the fields of Ukraine are drenched in Jewish blood and have been for centuries. And some of the places we went to, uh, uh, we knew that, you know, for example, in Kiev, we knew that there were mass graves uh, of, of Jews in, in these areas. And, uh, and the people we met, some of the Ukrainian, you know, villages, uh, we met, we knew that, you know, their parents or their grandparents probably uh, contributed in some way. Some of the, in one village we went to, a lot of the houses belonged to Jews had been taken over by Ukrainians. Uh, but that wasn't what the purpose of the trip was. Uh, the purpose of the trip was to be inspired spiritually. And so what Rabbi Tversky did was he invited members of his own congregation to come. So there were about 40 of us that, that, that came and also included were a number of his family members. 
his brother, a few of his sons. And so it was a very emotional trip. For example, the very first grave we went to, grave site we went to, was uh, uh, a, a great, great, great grandfather of his, a very, very famous Hasidic rabbi who's known by the name of his book, the Maore Nayim. And, and as we approached, as we approached the, uh, the gravesite, so he prepared us and, and he told us why we were going and what we were supposed to get out of it. And I'll talk about it a little bit more uh, in a moment. And, and we, we would sing songs and we would read and learn some of the Torah that each of these rabbis spoke. So um, this picture is just two of the participants just as we were, just as we landed in Kiev airport. So we flew through Amsterdam. Uh, another group came uh, on a, a bigger group came on another uh, flight. Now I'm just trying to get to the next picture and I'm trying to see why this is not. Um, okay. So uh, this is when we landed at the airport, the chief rabbi of, I think Kiev or Ukraine brought a, a Torah scroll to read from that day's Torah reading. It was a it was a Monday we landed, so he brought us a Torah scroll, uh, and uh, this is us. You know, this is the group uh, of of us. Most of us had arrived by then. Uh, now we got on the plane. We were given, uh, you know, lunch because it was lunchtime and. We'd been waiting for you know a little while, and and you know it was also a whole uh, operation to to supply food for us. As it turns out, uh, <clears throat> as it turns out, we spent a lot of time on the road, and and many times we were late. So we would get get into a hotel at twelve o'clock at night and have dinner at twelve o'clock at night, uh, and we would leave early in the morning. So you know. Uh, we we were sometimes we were eating on the on the bus itself. So this is this is Rabbi Tversky sitting next to his brother, and uh, so Rabbi, yes. you only see the airport picture still. You see the first picture. Only the first one, right? Yeah, oh. still with baggage. Uh, oh, why is that? Um, Oh, so wait a second. Sorry about that. Let's. Uh... Oh, so that's what you've seen. Okay. Uh, sorry about that. Oh, so now you see this one. No, you nope. Still seeing the airport. Oh, so, it's uh, okay. so now just nothing. Now, just, now it's just the screen. Okay, so wait a second. Um, yeah, this is what happens when you have when you're not an expert in. Let's stop this. Okay. Okay, so do you know what I'm going to do? Instead of let, 
let me ask you this. Can when I when I share the screen now, you see it now. Do you see? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, yes, fine. Sure. So all right, let's just uh, let's, okay. So yeah, again, sorry. So let's go back again. So this is this is in the airport. Uh, tell me if you can see it. Now you see the the group or yes, excellent. Uh, okay, people fine. with luggage. Okay, so there's there's an airport. Okay, good. Uh, there's our lunch, and here's Rabbi Tursky. So Rabbi Tursky, Rabbi Frank Tursky, the son of Rabbi Michal Tursky. Now Rabbi Rabbi Michal Rabbi Ephraim Tursky, his grandfather came from a town in Ukraine called Hornestiepel. And so he was called the Hornestiepler Rebbe. And that was one of the towns we went to. So we're going we're gonna to see that in a moment. This is us on the bus. Uh, and we, you can, we're singing. I'll play a video later. The person standing up with a computer, he's, his name is Bensi Friedman. He's the person that planned everything. And uh, uh, this is, you know, for me, again, the first time in Eastern Europe, seeing Soviet-style buildings. Yeah, you can see also these big apartment buildings. We, we didn't see, this was almost the only time we saw any buildings of any size because we really went into the, into the heartland of Ukraine. We didn't see, we didn't see Kiev at all. Uh, yeah, you can see a picture from a, a map. We were, we were heading up north to this. We were actually, the, our first stop, there's Kiev over, like on the bottom of the map. And here's about a three-hour drive to Chernobyl. Now, you know Chernobyl as the site of uh, the nuclear uh, power uh, plant meltdown. But it's also, yeah. a, it's also a town where there were a lot of Jews that lived, and that was the first place we went to. Now, I didn't realize when we got there that we were within the restricted zone of the nuclear power plant. And so uh, you're going to see in a moment. Now, one thing I want to just show you as well, there's a picture of a, a notebook that had been prepared for us with Torah material from each of the, the places we went to. So as we came closer, we were learning material from each of the rabbis. Uh, and here we are getting to the checkpoint. This is this uh, the person uh, talking to the Ukrainian was actually born in Ukraine and hadn't been back to Ukraine in 30 years. And he, he spoke fluent Ukrainian and here he's speaking to the, you know, the, the person that uh, let us in. He, he was at the nuclear reactor at the time that it happened and actually went in to save people. And he still survived, he's still around, but he, he told us that a lot of his friends had died. And, and he was telling us, you know, about the abandoned building. So we were about 15 kilometers away from the nuclear reactor. We were given... We each had to have special permits to get in. And let me see if I can show you the, the permit. If you can, I'll, I'll see if I can make it a little bit bigger. Um, but you can see over here, it says, this zone is not an amusement park. Despite the fact that radioactivity levels significantly decrease, it's still a very contaminated place. Um, do not touch anything. Do not sit on the ground. 
uh, it's not allowed to wear shorts and t-shirts, uh, do not eat or drink in open air, do not consume alcohol. Uh, you know, that was, that was a pretty, um, you know, I wasn't expecting that. I, I knew we were going to Chernobyl. I wasn't expecting us to be so close to the nuclear reactor. Um, so that was a little surreal. There were, there were, you know, pictures there. Apparently there is something called adventure tourism where people go to places like this. So there are people that visit. You would think that nobody would come within 50 miles of a place like this. Um, so uh, let me just, uh, this is also, I think one of the abandoned towns or oh, there's people parked over there, but we, we went past places which were completely abandoned. And now Yared, uh, uh, just, welcoming Mona in and, and Mark, let's just say hello to them. Okay. So, so this is what we did. This is a parking lot, which was probably a graveside. I mean, a great, a cemetery with lots of people buried. This, this rabbi was not just buried uh, by himself, but the, you know, the Soviets must have, you know, paved over the cemetery and uh, yeah, we are walking through. Now I remember this is the weather was about ninety degrees. There was no, you know, there was no air conditioning in the in this this place where the grave is. We were all trying to, you know, cram in as as much as we possibly can could. So here's the first picture I want to show you. So here, here's the grave of this rabbi named the Maore Nayim. And you can. See, so what we did was when we came in. We said some psalms. We, at every place we stopped, we said 10, 10 psalms. The, we had 1 to 10, the first place, 11 to 20, the second place. And then we each had, we had time to pray ourselves. Now, I'd sent out an email and I'd posted on Facebook asking people that wanted me to pray for them to give me names. And I literally had about uh, uh, close to a hundred names of people. So I, I stood there for quite a few minutes saying each person's name out, the Hebrew name, mother's Hebrew name, uh, try to have in mind what, you know, what they <clears throat> were praying for, whether it was, you know, for health or for <clears throat> children or for livelihood. But Rabbi Tversky, who uh, also sent out a, an email to his community he had pages and pages and pages of names. Now, why, why are we doing this? We're not praying to the rabbi himself. We, we pray to Hashem. We pray to God. Um, but what we do is we pray that in the merit of I this, in the, in the merit, in the merit of this, oh, hold on one second. Uh, In the, merit, in the merit of this holy person, uh, our prayer should be answered. And we believe that, you know, every, everybody uh, that dies, especially holy people, have their souls live on. They are, still, they are still alive in the next world. And we pray that they will intercede for us and they will pray to Hashem for us. And that's... And, and so we are more inspired. You know, we can pray at home. We can pray in our own house. We can pray in our own shul. Why did we have to travel halfway across the world to go pray at somebody else's 
graveside. We could just easily pray at home, but you get you get more inspired when you're around a, a holy person. Uh, so Rabbi Tversky was very, very emotional as he walked in. And when he started praying, he uh, towards the end, he called out and he said, Zaidi, you know, grandfather, like referring to his own great, great grandfather, asking him to, to pray for us. And this was the tone of the whole trip. The whole trip basically was going from one great person to another. And you're going to see, I'll show you. This was for me personally, this was one of the highlights uh, because I've been learning with Rabbi Tversky, the, the, this rabbi's teachings for about two or three years now. So I felt like I almost knew this rabbi and Yara was praying at his grave. And this was the first place we went to. Um, uh, and yeah, you can see as another picture of, so what happens is, people from around the world come and bring their what's called kvitlach, little pieces of paper with names on, and they place it on the grave. And you can see there's little candles, people like candles. Uh, and Rabbi Tversky, you can see, is reading this out, and then he just puts the pages on the, on the grave. Um, here's another picture. This is Rabbi Tversky's son. Yes, I hear him now. Uh, on this grave. Okay. That's all I can tell you. Okay. Listen to all right. Um, and as it turns out, on our way out, on our way out, we were told, we were told that we had to, we, we were told that we had to uh, take a radiation test for radioactivity. And this is, this is us going to take this test. Now, all we had to do was we had to stand at this machine, similar to like going through at the airport, look into this thing, press this button, and then we walked out. But there was, no one, there was no one standing there. There was no one checking to see. So it was just a, you know, like a, a facade. It was not, there were, and so my guess is that there was no real radioactivity. No, uh, it had been 20 years since the since the meltdown, but they just made us go through the motions, but it was still, this is me. This is me taking this test. But there, like I said, there was no one there to see if there was you know, anything wrong. There's uh, there's Chernobyl tour info. So people obviously come there to, um, oops, sorry, don't want that. Then we just had a little bit of a dance outside there. You can see the radio, the nuclear. Uh, and this was also quite a theme that, it wasn't, it wasn't a, uh, like a somber trip. It was, it was very uplifting. So we were singing a lot. We were dancing a lot. Uh, this, then we went to, this is another graveside. This is actually the Horner Stipler Rebbe's grave. So this is, I think, Rabbi Tversky's <coughs> great-grandfather. You can see how many candles were put out over here. Again, people reading names. Uh, and I'll, I'll take some questions afterwards. So, so this is now, you can see this. We were supposed to leave Chernobyl by 8 o'clock. We only got there at 8 o'clock. We left at about 10. And we went to a place called Anatevka. Anatevka, this, here's a, a drawing uh, uh, of what Anatevka looks like. I think the, the name Anatevka is familiar to people from Fiddle on the Roof. Um, 
but quite a lot of the people who were living in this little development, it was like a Jewish like development, uh, were from Crimea or Eastern Ukraine and had just moved there recently since the, the war broke out a couple of years ago with Russia. And this was actually, most of the buildings were brand new. In the middle, in the circle, there's a um, there's like a hotel. And then there's uh, this big building just across from it is a shawl. And then on the bottom, you can see there's a, uh, a little like white building. That's the grave, I think, of the Magid, the Magid of Chernobyl. Someone, a very, uh, you know, holy person that was buried there. But again, that area where he's buried was not developed. It was basically just a field. And I think that the reason is because that was probably a cemetery and the Jewish bodies buried in that place. They just weren't identified, but they weren't going to develop it. So apparently uh, the mayor of Kiev, not the mayor, the chief rabbi of Kiev owns this property. And I think with Chabad, they built this, this place. And there was actually a, a summer camp going on at the time. And uh, there were some kids that we saw. Uh, so here's a picture of um, uh, here's a picture of you know, these buildings. You see, they're brand new, and it was such a contrast from everything else we saw, uh, which was very old and obviously had been built a, a long time ago. Uh, here's here's uh, a picture of the shul, brand new shul that they uh, that they built. And this again is Rabbi Tversky just after, you know, we had, I think we had just finished davening. Uh, you can see someone still with these a few people with their tefillin on. So he's talking about this rabbi, the, the, the maggot of Chernobyl and telling stories. And again, what I'm telling you is just the, the outline. When you're there and he tells these stories it's much more emotional when you then go out to to walk to the gravesite so yes yes walking to you can see the, look at this field just completely you know uh unkempt and you know uncut and that this actually was quite f frequent we saw on a lot of the at a lot of the graves there it was uh, uh it was not well kept up and we at one place we even one of the guys took out $200 and paid someone and said, just, you know, hire someone to, you know, to mow the grass down. Um, now I'm going to tell you something very interesting. Look at this picture. You can see this is at, this is close to the grave. You see all the shoes outside. So uh, this is something Rabbi Tversky asked us to do. We didn't have to do it, but most of us did. He asked us to take off our shoes when we walked inside. Now, why did he, why did he ask us to take off our shoes? So there's a famous um, uh, passage in the, in the Torah where, where Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, comes to a certain place and uh, God says, remove your shoes because this is holy ground. This is holy land. And the, the Kohanim, the priests, when they served in the temple, they, they served barefoot. They took their, their shoes off. And so Rabbi Tversky said that, Besides the fact that that we are visiting the site of a of a holy rabbi, but the ground itself is holy ground. This is where this person, you know, the area was where he lived. This is where he's buried. So we should feel we should feel, you know, more 
holy. We should feel we should feel this kedusha, and that's why we that's why we took off our shoes. Um, so uh, again, here's a picture of us crowded in. Now you can imagine ninety degree weather. And people pretty intense. This is the rabbi saying psalms. So what we would do is we would say it, we would, we would say them, you know, together uh, as we went. Uh, he, has a, he has a picture from a distance of the of that grave. And um yes, he, he has a picture. I've mentioned there was a camp going on. Oh, I don't know why that's not coming up. Let's try that again. There we go. So you can see there was a camp, but it's very well. Look at the houses in the back. I mean, they're newly painted. It looked, it looked to me like it was really brand new. Um, and then uh, this is another, uh, for some reason, not coming up. Let's try this one. This was another grave. So now you can see it again. This is the place where the guy paid him $200 to clean up. This was... Uh, you can see all, a lot of names. This was a, in memory of, a, of Jews that died in a pogrom, uh, probably during the, during the war. This wasn't the grave that we came to, but this was the only, this was the grave site. You can see over here, this was, his name is Avram HaMalach. What Malach means an angel. Why was he called Avram HaMalach? Because people said that he never ate or slept. He was always learning or davening or you know, taking care of people. They called him Avraham Malach. Uh, but on the uh, on the left over here, there was a sign that looked like there was a, a, a some organization that was taking care of these graves. Because clearly, like this one, you can see it was almost like newly painted. Um, and uh, again, yes, you know, people praying at the grave. You know, everybody, like Rabbi Tversky said, has got what's called a peckle. We all carry something with us, something that uh, is on our minds that we're praying for, whether it's <coughs> for ourselves, for our friends, for our families, you know, for the you know Jewish people. And and as the as the time went by, so we, uh, you know, we got more into it. Now, the next place we went to, you might have heard of. Uh, it's called Uman. Uman is uh, the burial place of someone named Rav Nachman of Breslov. So there's a group of Hasidim called Breslov Hasidim from Breslov in Ukraine. But Rav Nachman, who was from Breslov, actually asked to be buried in Uman because a lot of Jews had been killed and died in Uman. And he wanted to be buried by these people who died, you know, sanctifying God's name. And uh, he, he, his writings have become have become very very popular. You know, a lot of the Hasidim, uh, what they uh, taught and what they uh, what their appeal was was to the the simple downtrodden Jew who lived in these very you know simple towns uh, in these shtetls, and he lifted them up. He made them feel they made. These Hasidic rabbis made them feel better about their situation and be hopeful, um, and not just in their physical, but even in their spiritual state. Uh, so Rabbi Nachman said that he encouraged people to come to his grave on Rosh Hashanah and that he would save them if they, you know, he would pray for them if, if, if they would come to him on Rosh Hashanah. So today, 
literally tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of Jews go to Uman every Rosh Hashanah to pray there. Now, where they're staying, you know, this, the, these are primitive, uh, these are primitive, you know, it's a primitive town. So over the years, what's happened is that uh, buildings have gone up, apartment buildings, 10, 15 story apartment buildings have gone up, hotels have gone up. Um, and it's the main source of revenue for the the, sec, the non-Jewish population of Uman. And uh, even not in Rosh Hashanah, during the rest of the year, there are always people that, that are in Uman. I spoke to someone who was visiting for like three weeks, and he told me, you know, it's $15 a day to stay in a, an apartment, and he's there to learn and to pray. Um, so here's a picture as we're coming closer. This is another rabbi that uh, joined us, and he's uh, what I would call a brezel of a chassid. He knows a lot of the teachings of Rabbi Nachman, and he's teaching us something as we're coming close. And I'll just, since um, uh, this is normally a Torah class, I'll tell you one thing that that uh, this rabbi taught us. He said that we, we're supposed to judge people favorably. You know, we're coming up to Rosh Hashanah literally in a month from, from now. This Shabbos is what's called Shabbos Mavorchim, which is uh, the, whenever there's a Rosh Chodesh, the first of the month, the Shabbos before that, we have special prayers to announce the beginning of the month. But this month that we're announcing is the month of Elul, which is a very uh, important month because it's the month that we prepare for Rosh Hashanah. You can't just turn up at Shul on Rosh Hashanah unprepared. So this month of Elul, uh, the extra prayers that are added to our prayers every day uh, in yeshivas around, you know, the world, the, the level of learning and praying is intensified because it's a short, you know, powerful, you know, 30 days. Uh, so one of the teachings of Rav Nachman is that we should, is, is based on, a Mishnah in Pirka Avos, a Mishnah in the Ethics of the Fathers, that says you should judge people favorably, give people the benefit of the doubt. Why do we want to give people the benefit of the doubt? Besides the fact that it's a good thing to do, but we want to emulate God and we ask God to give us the benefit of the doubt. When we give other people the benefit of the doubt, then God looks at us and says, you are being like me, so I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And all of us need God to give us the benefit of the doubt for all the things we've done this year that we said we were going to do that we didn't do for the bad things that we did. We've got excuses. We've got reasons why we've done that. And we want to ask God to be, to give us, um, you know, uh, be merciful on us and not judge us strictly. So the way to do that is to judge people favorably as well. So Rav Nachman takes this idea and he, and he extends it in two ways. He says, even if you, if you find a really bad person, a really, really bad person, then look for one good thing that everybody's got something good. Find one good thing about that person and focus on that. And when you find one good thing, then you'll find another thing and another thing. And pretty soon you'll find that he's not as bad as you thought he was. Now, we know, again, we're not talking about a, you know, a, a, a person who murdered someone or we're talking about people that we know, but someone that you, you, you feel is not a good person. Look for something good in them. Uh, but then he said that the most important person to find good in is yourself. Sometimes we are, we, you know, we've got low self-esteem. We don't feel good about ourselves. We don't feel like we, we're doing what we 
could be doing. You're not reaching our potential. We're not learning as much Torah. We're not, you know, praying as much as we should. Not, you know, treating people as well. We're speaking Losh and Horror. And you don't feel good about yourself. So what you do is you find something good about yourself, something good that you do. We all do something good. And then when you find something good about yourself, then you'll find more good about yourself and you'll become a better person that way. So with, with that in mind, we went into Uman. But now Uman was a very different experience. Um, this is us coming. Now what we saw in Uman, it was like almost like being back in Israel. <laughs> there were lots, lots of Israelis. All the other places we went to, all the other places we went to, it was really us, just the bus alone, 40 of us going to one of these graves, but no one else, uh, except the, the next place we went to, which I'll tell you about, there were a few more people. But in Oman, there were buildings and Israeli signs. I'll show you. Um, look at this, for example. Um, Oman Shake. So the, like a place selling milkshakes, but there's Hebrew writing. And there's, uh, there's a, you can see on the right, there's a, like an a apartment building with billboards that are written in Hebrew. And, and he has a picture of, uh, this one's not coming up for some reason. Uh, this was, again, uh, somebody selling uh, books by Rav Nachman. And this, you can see in the distance, that's the entrance to Rav Nachman's uh, what's called Heichel, the, the hall or the, the place where he's buried. And when we walked in, this is, this is the site we saw. Um, uh, not sure. Some, for some reason. Oh, there we go. So this is what we saw. People sitting down like a regular shul. They're learning. They're saying psalms. Uh, some of them are davening. And you can see on the, in the middle of the picture, that's, that's where he's, he's buried. And that's where a lot of people started saying uh, the saying psalms. And, and then we, and then we actually davened Mincha. This is, uh, this is the group. We were davening Mincha. We just found a corner of the shul. But it was a very different experience. It was, a, you know, just, you know, in general, you know, we live in a physical world, but we believe that there's something deeper. There's something spiritual behind. Each person is a body and a soul. So you had to look at Uman in that way as well. This was a very holy rabbi who inspired many, many people, um, people who are not necessarily wearing payas and, you know, and strimals that are chassidim, regular people who are inspired by Rabbi Nachman's teaching, who are drawn, you know, to Uman to come and be inspired. And, uh, and you have to look below the surface. There were people, you know, kids coming up and asking us for tzedakah and, and adults coming and, and clearly people who were, you know, lost and, and maybe shouldn't have been there and the place wasn't so clean, but, but you had to, you had to ignore that and you had to, you had to see below the surface. So that was, that was quite an experience. And then um, here's a, here's a picture of me taking a COVID test because we were there for such a short time. We, we all had to take a COVID test, which was then, um, you know, sent to us. We couldn't leave the country. When I went to check in, I couldn't leave the country until I showed them the pass. And, you know, you, um, I, I can't say that it was the, you know, I don't know how, uh, you know, effective the test was, but we had to get this test before we, before we left. 
Um, now, here's something also, and I, I'm going to try to play some videos at the end. After we left Uman, they brought on the bus a, uh, I think he's either Israeli or maybe he lives in Uman, uh, a singer with a guitar. And so here we are sitting on the bus singing, you know, for, you know, whenever we had an opportunity, it was really, really beautiful. And there was, you know, a big part of a big part of the experience was was all the the singing. So now this is probably the highlight of the trip for everyone. We get to the uh, gravesite of uh, someone named the Baal Shem Tov, um, and so yes, 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 the hotel or yes, the the dining room where we had dinner. And, uh, you know, again, this is like 11, 12 o'clock at night uh, because I didn't show you the picture before. Uh, most of the roads outside of Kiev are just filled with potholes. So we were going at about 30 miles an hour for the entire three days. And uh, at one point they were doing construction on the road and they shut one. There was only one lane. So they shut one lane down for half an hour and then they opened it other lane for half an hour. So we were stuck, you know, like that for about half an hour. But so we get there, you can see, you know, a very sumptuous meal. And then we went to not the grave of the Balchemto. We went there, there the next morning, but we, we went to Daven Marev in the shul that the Balchemto dovened in. Now, it wasn't the it wasn't the exact shawl because the the shawl had been you know destroyed by the Nazis, um, but they rebuilt the shawl in the exact same spot in the because they had pictures of it in the exact um, same model, and so uh, let me so this is us walking on this cobbled street you know about midnight or so to to his grave to his to the shawl and um here's a picture uh this is us uh after admirev i think let's see if it comes up uh this is the shawl there's a person singing uh and this is the this is the place where the balshemtov prayed so you walked into this place. Now, this is now after two days or day and a half. And uh, we're coming to the founder of the Hasidic movement, a person who, whose teachings have spread all over the world and, and is the inspiration for all the other rabbis that we visited and many other Hasidic rabbis. And we're standing in the same space, if not the exact same building, but in the same space where he prayed. And for people like Rabbi Tursky, and not just Rabbi Tursky, but for all of us, it was, uh, uh, it's hard to really explain the feeling that, but we all had this feeling like we were, we were, it was at Ne'ila of Yom Kippur, like multiplied by 10. It was very, and, and that prayer, that Myriv prayer was one of the most, you know, intense prayers that I think any of us had, had ever prayed. And, I, you know, I don't think, if I'd gone on my own or with someone and gone there, I would have felt that same feeling. It was because all of us, many of us who knew each other and we knew Rabbi Tversky and we'd, you know, been taught and, and, and prepared for this. It, it was very, very powerful. Um, and then uh, this is a, this is a picture of me praying. 
right by the, the cave of the Baal Shem Tov. This was the next morning. We dove in Shachris, and then we went to, uh, to, to his, uh, this is his grave site. This is, this is the Baal Shem Tov's uh, grave site. And you can see also that they found a lot of, they found a lot of uh, broken tombstones, which they, uh, they, re, you know, repositioned and put in this, uh, like the cemetery. So there's the, the main building is where the Baal Shem Tov and a few other people are buried, but you can see these broken tombstones. Some of them had names on, some of them didn't. Um, but all these fields, you know, were probably places where Jews had been killed and maybe buried. Um, and uh, this is, um, again, I apologize, I'm not sure what's coming up, but this is me praying at the, at the graveside of the Baal, the Baal Shem Tov. Um, and I'm going to talk for another few minutes and then I'm going to take questions. I'm sure you've got, you've got lots of questions. Let's just wait until this one comes up. Um, Let's try this one. There we go. Okay, so this is this I think is is where the ball chamber. They were maybe the ball chamber was right just on the next to the curtain over there. Um, then we went to this is the ball chamber's mikveh, which apparently is one of the coldest mikvehs, even colder than what's called the Ari's mikveh in Swat. So we all went into the mikveh. Uh, it's not really the mikveh of the Baal Apparently, there was a a well. Uh, uh, that's not that one's not coming up. But there there was a there was a well where the Baal Shem, You can see at the back of the picture there was a well. Apparently, where some miracle happened and and water came up and the Baal Shem was able to go to the mikveh. So they built a mikveh. So you know, amongst Chassidim, they go to the mikveh every day. Uh, now, there, here's a fascinating picture. And this is something that uh, struck me throughout this trip. This, look at the roads. These are the kinds of roads that we were driving on all the time. This is also close to a, a gravesite. This was probably a Jewish village that taken over by Ukrainians. This is a woman in a horse and buggy. This is her way that she got back and forth from home. And uh one of the guys asked her she was waiting for her dentist appointment the dentist lived in a house over there and she was waiting till three o'clock to go to the dentist and uh, you know th these were the kinds of sites we saw wherever we traveled these very it was almost like we were back in the 1900s early 1900s late 18 1800s Small primitive villages, no stores to speak of, no sidewalks, no stoplights or anything like that. Kids barefoot running around. Um, and apparently people have got very little money or, you know, destitute and poverty stricken. And so anytime you would give someone even a, a dollar, you know, for them, it was almost like that, that's how much money they made in a day. In fact, the one place we went to, this was quite, so uh, I'm, I'm not going to show you all the pictures of other graves. This was one place I'll show you. Uh, this was quite interesting. This was 
uh, in a town, a little bit of a bigger town, but this had a big Jewish cemetery. So the whole, this whole area, uh, and this particular rabbi was, wasn't a Hasidic rabbi, but he was a very famous uh, uh, rabbi who commented on the Talmud from hundreds of years earlier, and he was buried there. And there was one person who apparently also collected all the tombstones, researched them, numbered them, uh, and and he had just passed away just recently. But uh, this was the this was another place we went to, and then uh, then there was one last place we went to. This was called Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Bedichev. So we we went to Bedichev. Uh, Rav Levi Yitzhak is very famous for always um, loving the Jewish people and always advocating for them to to Hashem. Now, the the, the um, uh, this is toward right at the end of the trip. I was actually leaving on a different flight than everyone else. I was going on uh, an earlier flight because uh, I was flying to Lakewood to go to a wedding. And that's who I saw, Mona and Mark. Uh, I managed to make it there. This was, you know, my daughter, Elisheva, is married to Shia. Shia's sister was getting married in Lakewood on Thursday night. So I was taking a flight early Thursday morning, scheduled to arrive in at JFK at uh, about 1.45, giving me enough time to get to, to the wedding. Um, but we were running so late. I had a special driver who was supposed to pick me up at 12 o'clock at a hotel where they were having dinner in the final evening, 12 o'clock. We were still on the road. We hadn't even got to the hotel. The hotel was still an hour away from this place. And there was two hours at least to Kiev, two and a half hours. My flight was at, I think seven 45. I needed to be there by five 45 uh, or maybe it was, my flight was at 5.45, but I was getting a little bit nervous. So the last place I went to was this graveside. And then uh, I, I left the, the group. There was one other person in our, in our taxi. He, we drove to the hotel where they had a very fancy, um, they had a very fancy uh, dinner set up with a klezmer band. And, oh, wait, this is one thing I have to show you. This uh, I mentioned, I have to show you a video. This is on, at one of the great sites. We actually did take a horse and buggy. The guy, was, it was a little bit of a, a road to go down and we paid about a dollar to, if I get the video, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll show you. Um, so, yeah, let's, uh, let me, let me pick up, let me play this one. Let me see if I can find this one video. Um, Let's see if you can tell me if you can see this video. Yeah, we can see. Okay, so that's uh, that's us. That's us on the video on the on the on the um, on the horse and buggy. So so just to end off the story, and then I'll maybe I'll play one or two other videos. Uh, just end of the story, I get to the airport, you know, with enough time, I go to check in. And when I check in, the, the 
the check-in person says, I, my ticket's not booked. It says that my ticket was reserved, but it wasn't paid for. So uh, I'm looking at the time. The time is going by. And I said, what am I supposed to do? I, 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 I got you. And I, I, I must have paid for the ticket to be in Ukraine in the first place. But she just wouldn't listen. So she says, I've got to go to counter number 60. So I run to counter number 60. You know, Baruch Hashem, there was only one other person in line. It could have been a line. You know, these service lines could have been 20 people. You know, it could have been an hour waiting in the line. I get to the person. The person says, you know, your ticket's not booked. You're going to have to book another ticket. And the ticket that, so I said, okay, I'll do it. I don't want to be stuck in Ukraine because it was Thursday. I, you know, who knows what would have, would have happened if I didn't get on the flight. So the flight uh, was $1,000 extra. Uh, so then she says, but there's another flight that's leaving uh, three hours later. Not, I mean, the flight from Kiev was leaving the same time, but the flight from Amsterdam, the layover was leaving three hours later, was cheaper. So I, I said, okay, I'll take that one. She found it. But then when I gave her my credit card, she said, the credit card's not working. I, so I said, what am I supposed to do? So she said, you have to go to the ATM. So I go to the ATM. There's a guy standing there and he takes a few minutes. And now the time is going by. I'm the only person that hasn't checked in. Put my credit card in. I've got to get like 18,000, 12,000 of the Grebers or whatever the currency is. It only lets me take out 8,000. So uh, I put in another credit card and fortunately I got the money. I run back, I pay for the ticket. Again, on the flight, I was absolutely, you know, like, you know, drenched, you know, uh, but I got on the flight, I landed in, in Amsterdam and the contrast between the airport in Amsterdam and Kiev just, you know, reminded me what, what kind of a life the people who live in Ukraine live now and what our ancestors lived in, the struggles that they went through. And I made it to New York. I got, you know, uh, got to the, the wedding in time, had a wonderful time, um, and uh, and then spent Shabbos back in Chicago, where Rabbi Tversky, you know, spoke a few times about how we've got to take the inspiration of this of this trip and do something practical. We can't just um, we can't just be inspired emotionally. And spiritually, we've got to do something practical, choose something small, and uh, particularly because we're coming up to Elul and, and before Rosh Hashanah, try to do something. So I've, I've, I've come up with a couple of things that I want to do, but this is also one thing I want to encourage you all to do as we come to the month of Elul, uh, is, is to try to find something extra to do over the next 30 days. Do, you know, whether it's, if you've been learning you know, once a week, try learn twice a week. If you've been learning every day, try add five minutes. You know, uh, if uh, you know you uh, visited, you know, someone who's elderly or sick, you know, once a week, do it twice a week. Or you know, if you did it once a month, do it once a week. That was one of the things that came from Rabbi Tversky. Let me play you one or two more videos. Uh, this is in the in the shul of the Baal Shem Tov, um, I mentioned that we were singing. We, we can see, but we don't actually hear the... Oh, uh, you can't hear it. 
No. Oh, okay. So let's. Uh, I think in order to. Okay, I think in order to. In order to hear it, I've got to do another. Let me see when I uh, share. Oh, there, here we go. Tell me, tell me if you can hear it now, Debbie. I'm okay. gonna hold yeah. a second. choose one more um, I want to just choose one more this was um, this is on the you know, this is uh, yes Rabbi Tversky speaking the Shalom Lamagid uh, established a Malchus his, his, <coughs> his entire Haga was one of Malchus is a kingdom. Um, he carried himself that way. His culture. How can I do something? Okay. Um, all right. So what I'm going to do is. Uh, I'm going to unmute everyone or um, and just pause. So it's already, it's almost 10.30. I hope you've enjoyed this and uh, I hope it's inspired you a little bit. I'm going to ask if any of you want to ask any questions and and uh, and then we'll, I wish you all a, a good service.